Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you again that we can be here. Lord, I thank you for all that you have done for us and continue to do, and I thank you for that love that you bestow on each and every one of us. And Lord, I ask now that it's your words that are spoken and not my own, and that everyone hears what you would have them hear. I thank you again, Lord, and ask these things in your name. Amen. He sat at his desk, tapping his fingers against the coarse wood. He had been in the city of Ephesus now for almost three years, but the church in Corinth was the one that was really weighing heavy on his mind. See, Corinth was a beautiful city. It was located perfectly within the trade routes between Europe and Asia, and as a result, the city was rich, it was prosperous, and the lifestyle was loose. In fact, in the middle of town, there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite that was set up, and of course, Aphrodite represented all sorts of loose love. And it was said that if the gospel could survive here in Corinth, then the gospel could survive anywhere, and the gospel could be proclaimed anywhere if the people in Corinth would indeed accept it. But the church in Corinth, of course, had a a couple problems. See, it was affected by the culture that was surrounding it. And I mean, I think any church knows that the culture around that church kind of seeps in every now and then. And it's something that, that has to be dealt with. And so there sat Paul. He had already written a good portion of his letter to the church in Corinth. And he had already addressed things like the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, they were uh, using it as a time for feasting and celebration. And they were using it as a time to use the, the foods that were offered to idols. And they would eat and be merry. So he had already addressed that. Then there was conduct in church. The church had become loud and disruptive during services. And so he addressed that issue. And then there had been a couple arguments that had become so bad that Apollo, a young man that had been sent to Corinth to help them, had finally had enough. And he had returned to be with Paul in Ephesus. And Paul couldn't talk him back into going. And so there sat Paul. He had one final part of his letter to write. And it was that some in the congregation did not believe that there was going to be a resurrection. Now, that made sense when one considered the culture in which the church in Corinth and the other church in Thessalonica lived during that time. See, the Greek way of viewing death was such that when a person passed away, they never returned. And the memory of them had to be constantly remembered or else it was going to be bad for for the deceased. And so it was constantly, you were paying homage to to the deceased. You were constantly trying to, um, while you were alive, maybe build some sort of architectural wonder that your name would constantly be said and remembered because it was believed that that would provide you with some hope in the afterlife. But, I mean, so, I mean, then there was the idea of eternal torment and immortal souls and all this within the Greek culture. And Paul wanted to ensure that this church in Corinth specifically understood the hope that the Christian church had. And so he begins by writing, and if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians a lot today. So 1 Thessalonians 15. And we're going to look at verse 12. 1 Thessalonians 15, verse 12. So Paul says, Now if Christ 
is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He begins to write. And for years, the idea of loss, I mean, there's been financial loss, there's, um, you know, familiar loss, whether we move somewhere new and we're getting used to that, and there's the loss, we mourn the loss of what was left. There's all sorts of different kinds of loss in life, but I think loss of life is something that has always perplexed humans throughout time. And so this is something that those in Corinth and those in Thessalonica are really struggling with at this time. This concept of death, it's confused people, it's confounded people. The ancient Egyptians devised a whole book that was very pricey and could only be afforded by the rich in order to ensure that they could navigate through the afterlife. The religions of ancient Persia and Babylon, they devised a merit system. So as long as you did more good in your life than bad, then you were hopefully going to be okay. And then the Greeks, of course, they they took a little bit from each. And by the time you get to these poor Christian churches in Corinth and Thessalonica, you've got a pretty mixed up bunch. Each building and borrowing until you ended up with a completely sad, hopeless situation. Where was the hope? That was the question. To further complicate things, not that it was really complicated, but Christ had, he had died and he had risen again and that was wonderful, but then he had ascended back to heaven. But he had promised them before he went that he would return. Amen. Amen indeed. And many of them were very excited because they thought and hoped that Christ would come in their lifetime. But now something was beginning to happen. Time was passing and some of the older members were beginning to pass away. Perhaps some had become sick and others had been martyred. And so they're beginning to ask themselves, what now? What had become of the hope? And so this rumor begins to circulate in the church, in the Corinthian church, and people are saying that there is no resurrection. Where's the hope in that? And in 1 Thessalonians, we get the idea that they had the same problem. So if you look in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, Paul begins to write, and keep your finger in 1 Corinthians as well. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 13, Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, is Paul saying that if somebody passes away, we shouldn't grieve? Absolutely not. But he's saying, don't grieve like those who have no hope. In other words, this church is experiencing the loss of members, and they're beginning to doubt. And Paul is saying, no, wait, we have a hope in something wonderful. Hold on. Don't despair. But what then is that hope? That's the question. To those living in Thessalonica and Corinth during this time period, there did not appear to be much hope. They saw death as an end in their culture and nothing more. In fact, within the Greek culture, it was said by many that it was better to to die or to live as a pauper on earth than to die and be a king in the afterlife because there was no hope beyond the grave. It was a sad end. So it was something to be feared. And yet Paul is saying that there is something to hope for. There's something. And I can imagine a smile beginning to spread across Paul's face as he begins to write in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 to 18. And he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, he says, comfort one another with these words. So to those reading it that had been brought up with this view that death was some sort of horrible end and and you had to constantly go through life hoping to pay homage to your dead relatives and hoping that one day somebody would remember you or else you just float around and be this lost little thing, Paul is saying something profound. First off, he's saying that death is a rest. That when we die, we're resting. And we will raise again when? At the last trumpet, when Christ comes again. And so for those reading that, that in and of itself is hopeful. As it would be for us, I would hope. And secondly, we will see them again. We will see those that we've lost again. There will be a resurrection. But let's take a step back for a second and ask ourselves a different question. Why do we have this hope? Why do we have this hope? Jumping back to 1 Corinthians, when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he had said, the sting of death is sin. And to his letter to the Romans, he had said that all have sinned. So we've all sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Therefore, with those three things lined up beside each other, it seems hopeless. It seems hopeless. And yet Paul is saying that we have hope. So where does this hope come from? Wherein does this hope lie? On the night that Christ was born, and I realize it wasn't December 25th, but being the season and all, on the night that Christ was born, the angels had come to those shepherds, and they had proclaimed, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be unto all people. And then they said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a babe who is Christ the Lord. And you will find that baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then the Bible goes on to say that suddenly there was with that angel a multitude of the heavenly host proclaiming and praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. So if the angels are so excited about something, and they are up there in the sky saying glory to God in the highest and fear not because we've got some good news to share with you. We've got tidings of great joy. Then what then is that great joy? Obviously it's something so great that heaven itself could not keep quiet. Obviously this baby Jesus was going to grow up to do something so spectacular that heaven itself couldn't keep quiet about it. This baby was going to do something worth proclaiming those words, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. So the question is, what is this joy? If we live in a world where death is the only certain thing, more or less, and it's something that for years people have struggled with and they've formed legends and myths about it, and they've tried to come up with all sorts of ideas, then how on earth is there great joy to be found in all of this? Especially when at times it seems like there may be nothing to be joyful about. What possible hope could one baby bring to this earth? 
And as I read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, Paul had said, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So why did Christ come to this earth? What did Christ's resurrection mean to me and you? In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, and 54b and 55, Paul says, Death has been swallowed up in what? In victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Where is it? So whose victory swallowed up death? Christ's victory. Swallowed up death. And what hope does that leave us with? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 and 52. And I can only imagine how excited Paul was when he was writing this to this church in Corinth as he was trying to explain to them the good news that we have and that we hold because of what Christ has done for us. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 and 52, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when? At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall all be changed. So twice now he has said those words, we shall all be changed. He's excited about this. He's excited. And when does all this happen? At the last trumpet, when Christ comes again. At Christ. So not only did Christ conquer sin and death, but he's also given us hope in something else. His return. And of course, I'm sure that we all know in John 14, verses 1 to 3, I think it was one of the first verses I memorized as a kid. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and I prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, and here's the key, I will come again and receive you unto me, that where I am there you may be also. So not only did Christ conquer sin and not only did he conquer death, but he gave us hope that one day he would return. One day soon. And we can hold on to that and know that it's going to happen. And with it, we have such a hope. The Christian church had such a hope in what Christ came to do. Not only will he come and get us again, but he's going to give us new bodies. That's pretty exciting. And I mean, this was obviously a concern by quite a few, as uh, in 1 Corinthians 15.35, Paul actually addresses the question. He says, but someone will ask you and say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? And in doing Bible studies, I've actually had people ask that question. It's a concern, because scientifically, it doesn't seem possible. If I die and my body decomposes, how on earth is Christ going to put me back together again? Because he's going to give me a new body. And for those of us that will be alive and remain when he comes, we too will get a new body. And I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty pretty exciting. Because, you know, we have aches and pains and disease and different things going on in our bodies that aren't all that great. You know, our eyes get worse as we get older. And yet Paul is saying we will all be changed. We are all going to be given that new body. That's a pretty good Christmas gift. (laughs) And for those who have died already, they too will receive that body. 
that baby born so long ago in a stable with no one to welcome his arrival except for a few shepherds and the animals that looked on. That baby who gave up heaven and a place where angels, angels worshipped at his feet. That baby gave it all up so that we could have hope. That baby born some 2,000 years ago would crush the power that death and sin held over us and offer us hope in return. So Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56 and 57, he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but, and I love the word but, but, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death, although it was something that stung like a scorpion, and it still does, I mean, nobody likes to experience personal loss. As you sang the song, I was thinking of my grandma when she was on earth. And I mean, no one likes to experience death. But we have such a hope in what Christ has done for us. So Paul could write to the church in Thessalonians, he could say, we have hope, therefore we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. We have hope that this life is only the beginning of something so much better. So death has been swallowed up in victory. And thus Paul in Romans 6.23, I had only read the first part when I said the wages of sin is death, but, and there's that but again, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So because of what Christ did to us, he offers us that gift of eternal life through Jesus. Thanks be to God who has indeed given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been offered such a hope through what Christ did for us. And Christmas, I know whether you celebrate it or you don't, and I know that the world has turned it into a commercialization nightmare, but Christmas is a time when we can take a step back and we can say, wow, look at what Christ did in giving up all that he gave up for us. Look at what he did for me. He's given us the victory over sin. He's given us the victory over death. And in giving us the victory over sin, too, that doesn't mean that I can hold on to one or two cherished sins, you know, and say, okay, well, everyone else is doing something bad, so I can hold on to these, too. Because, no, what did Christ do? He gave us the victory. So the victory over sin, the victory over death, the victory over all the things we struggle with, and he offers us hope through a free gift that Christ has given us on the cross that day. And we have hope because of a God that loves us. But we aren't finished yet. I mean, we have this hope. We have this to look forward to. But for today, what about right now? How can we apply this in our own lives today? And I want to read this uh, thing that Ellen White writes. She says, Christmas Day is a precious reminder of the sacrifice made in man's behalf. It should not be devoted to gluttony and self-indulgence, thus exalting the creature above the creator. Let us who are partakers of this great salvation show that we have some appreciation of the gift by rendering to God our thank offerings. If we would indulge less in feasting and merriment upon these occasions, and here's the key, and instead make them the means of benefiting humanity, we should better meet the mind of God. So where does that leave us? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Paul had said, Therefore, let us encourage one another with these words. So a very 
simple and practical application is that we have a hope worth sharing. We have a message worth sharing with other people. We serve a God that actually loves us. And when Paul was writing this, I mean, that was huge for these people that had come out of these pagan religions where their gods were often mean and fighting and you always had to appease them and bring those propitiations and those offerings before them to try to make them happy. And it was just, it was a constant life of trying to make sure that, you know, everything was good on the God front, so to speak. But Christianity had offered a God, the God, that loves us. And that was huge. And he offers us hope. And he has taken that sacrifice for us. Making himself the sacrifice. So Paul had said, therefore, encourage one another with these words. We have hope in a resurrection. We have hope in what God has done. So let us be God's hands and feet on earth. Let us reach out to other people and offer them those words of encouragement that we have to share. And of course, that doesn't mean forcing someone to believe what you believe but simply offering a kind word. It means serving like Christ served. It means reaching out to those that are hurting and giving them those words of encouragement. And so 2,000 years ago, a baby was indeed born in a stable with the animals around to greet him. He was not born a noble or a king, but he was born the son of a carpenter and his young wife. But that humble baby born so long ago was one that excited heaven so much that the angels had to sing to proclaim to those shepherds what Christ was going to do, that there was hope. And that baby would grow up and he would live among us and he would teach and heal and just live among man. And one day he would die, but he would rise again. And with that we have hope that one day this world, with all its pain and its loneliness and its sickness and its despair, that one day this world will be but a faint memory as we live forever with our Lord and Savior and with those that are missing from our lives. And we thank God for that hope. But thanks be unto God, who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen.